I love to travel. I love going to new places, seeing new things. And one of the things that I really appreciate, what I really enjoy, is going to see different buildings and structures. Seeing bridges and monuments and museums. When I went to Washington a few years ago, it was my first time there, and I was just amazed at the architecture and, and, and certain buildings having certain symbols um, put on them. And they're built in such a way that they fulfill their purpose. They're, they're, they're built in such a way that they can be used effectively for what they were meant to be used effectively for. At least that's the hope, it is Washington. But, anyways, I digress. I love going and seeing bridges. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about just the regular concrete overpass bridges, but I remember standing on a hillside in San Francisco and looking at the Golden Gate Bridge, this incredible expanse, and, and seeing it there, and, and how it was just able to withstand the wind and all the work that's always put on it to, over, to, to keep it up, but it's fulfilling its purpose of getting people from the, the North Bay to the South Bay to from the, the suburbs into the city, and, and day by day, traffic's just going through it. It's, it's, it's fulfilling the purpose that it was created, it was manufactured to fulfill. I love seeing skyscrapers, these ginormous office buildings, that's really all they are, yet they're built to maximize space in a very tight area, and some of them, just the way they stand in a skyline and, and and show that, well, something important must go on there. At least that's the hope. But that's what they're doing. They're fulfilling their purpose. And, and these are all just man-made tools to accomplish something. To be put together to fulfill their meaning, their purpose. And then I began to think, what is it that our lives are meant to be about? What is the purpose of our life. A few years ago, I guess it's quite a few years ago now, uh, a, a pastor named Rick Warren, he wrote this book called Purpose Driven Life. I know that even in Eastgate's past, they did a 40 days of purpose uh, study a long time ago. And it talked about this, this living for our purpose. And that purpose is to know God, to make Him known, and to delight in Him. And then when we find our delight in Him, the way our life is oriented is it's shifted, it's, it's changed, it's directed to finding its meaning. Today, we have woken up and we've come to church for a reason, a purpose. Maybe that purpose was to just socialize with some people that, that you are familiar with, that you enjoy being around week after week. Maybe it was to not only socialize, but to spend time with those people in knowing the Bible, in learning Scripture and what the lesson of the day is. Sometimes just walking down the hallway during our Sunday morning life groups is, is quite refreshing because I hear the discussions, the questions that are going on, and it's the bouncing of ideas. And, and uh, I was hearing some, some people talk about Jesus in the desert for 40 days fasting and, and how incredible just that thought is and what it would have to be to train your body to do that. Perhaps you woke up today and you said, you know, I, I don't want to waste this Sunday. Maybe you've missed out a few because of either sickness or busyness or something, travel, and, and you just don't want to miss out today. But what is it we would be missing out on? I think it would be that we would be missing out on what we were created for. We were created to be living acts of worship. And that means something. That means something more than just words. It means something deeper in our life. And, and it, it means that our life has a purpose beyond ourselves. And today we're going to be looking again at the letter of 1 Corinthians in our series called Awakened, you know, Waking Up for a Purpose, Being Awakened by the Cross and the Christ, to see what the Apostle Paul was telling this church at Corinth, this church that was struggling to get it right, to live what they were meant to live. And so would you stand with me as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and following. This is on page 1012 if you have one of our pew Bibles. And if you need a Bible in print, here's what I'm going to invite you to do. The little black Bible that's in the pew in front of you, um, you can take it, open it up, and then whenever you depart from here, you can take it home. Because we want to get Bibles in the hands and hearts of people. And the first way we do that is by giving it to you in your hands. So 
It's on page 1012. But stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word. It will be on the screen. And this is what it says. Verse 10. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder. And another builds on it. But each one, each one is careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that today you would help us to grasp and understand your word, to treasure it, to think upon it, and to react to it. To react in a way that is appropriate, listening to who you are, what you have done, and what you say, and knowing that when we honor you and delight in you, that means following after your word. Use it immensely in our lives today, for we all need you. We need to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, when we're trying to gain some understanding of Scripture, I share this each week, um, it's, it's very important that we don't merely just flip open the Bible for looking for news and saying, all right, God, give me the news I need today. Flip open the Bible, whatever our, um, our finger points to, that's the verse we need. Did you guys ever do that with a globe, you know? One day I'm going to travel to, and you spin the globe, and you point down, and most of the time you just land in the middle of the Pacific Ocean because, you know, that's the biggest part. Yeah, um, that's not advisable when it comes to Bible study, when it comes to learning and discerning from God and His Word. Uh, God has given us this complete Bible, this book of, that is a collection of books from 40 different authors over a period of over 1,500 years, speaking three different languages in three different continents. And it's complete. And each part reveals a little bit about each other. And here, we're in this letter. The, the parts, some parts of the New Testament are letters written by these apostles, these leaders of the church, to the local church that God inspired them, just as He inspired all the prophets, to speak His Word, but to give it their bit of personality. So it's all God's Word, but sometimes you see the personality of Paul and the way those words come together. You see the personality of James and Peter. They have different writing styles, yet the Holy Spirit is all using them for His purpose. He's built the Bible for a purpose. And that purpose is that we may know who God is, what God says, and what God does, and what that means for us to reflect and follow upon that. In this portion of the Scripture, it is important to realize that Paul is writing to a church that he helps to found. He's the author, um, the human author. The Holy Spirit is inspiring him to do this. But he is the human author writing to this church that he loves. He's, he's a person that's failed, flawed, just like us. And yet God is using him immensely to capture the beauty of his word. And he's writing to this church from a, over a thousand miles away. And he's written to this church called Corinth. The church of God at Corinth. Now, Corinth is a, in a place where there's all kinds of opportunities. There's people from all over the world that come through Corinth. It would be the most awesome mission field without having to go anywhere. The world would come to their backyard. And so they had a unique opportunity to live for the Lord Jesus in the midst of that city. And 
unfortunately, they were not doing that. They had fallen asleep at the helm. They were not fulfilling the purpose that God had for them. And Paul is essentially telling them to wake up to the fact that the Christ and the cross changes everything. And it changes your purpose. It changes us seeing what we were built to accomplish. And he's showing them that Jesus has complete ownership and authority to direct our purpose. And so, when we think about what it means to be built for God's purpose, we're going to look at today and see that we are built, all of us, every single one of us, whether we know God yet or not, all of us was created, built, to be a living act of worship, to be holy temples of God. So what does it mean, scripturally, what does it mean for our lives to be this? To be living acts of worship. Now I want you to notice, Paul does not make a beeline here. He doesn't say, dear church at Corinth, you're not being living acts of worship. Stop it. Love you, Paul. That is not where he goes. Paul begins building a case to where he needs to get to. And here he starts talking about the foundation and what's built upon the foundation. He brings some beginning observations that they need to understand, not only about who they are, but also about who he is and what it means for them to be together in this foundation of worship. The first thing he shares, the first observation that he makes is that all of us have a foundation gifted by God's grace. He didn't say, hey, I'm Paul, I have a lot of authority. You should listen to what I say. He's saying, no, by God's grace, according to the grace, God's grace that was given to me. Paul says, I am no one without God's grace. This is someone who is highly educated, who was well-known, very famous, especially within the church of that day. Especially the church at Corinth, well, because he started it. You know, that would be like, um, some of you are new here, and you, you probably don't know who Levi Parrish was. But for most people, it's like, yeah, if you know Eastgate, Eastgate you know, and someone says Levi Parrish, kind of, they kind of go together. Here, he's saying, I'm not banking my life on my name. I'm not banking my life on my education. I'm not banking my life on my status. I'm not banking my life on my experience in travel. I want you to know that each of us are only able to do what we are able to do for the glory of God because of the foundation that was gifted to us by God's grace. See, the apostle was making it known. He counted it as a privilege to know the God's grace. He knew he didn't deserve it. Grace is merely God's unmerited favor. That means we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We couldn't achieve it. And Paul is saying, I counted a privilege to know God's grace. I, I have been privileged that this has been made known to me. And I, and I would go ahead and say right now that that is truly a privilege because there are many throughout the world who have not been privileged to know the grace of God. Not because God wants to withhold it from them, but because the church has not taken it to them. We have withheld our responsibility to share this privilege. And the Apostle says it's a, it's a privilege to know the grace of God. It's also a privilege to partake in sharing such a gift. And it's not only a privilege to receive it, but it's a privilege to say, look what I got. And guess what? You can have it too. That's huge. He's saying, according to God's grace that was given to me, this is what I've done. In order for the life of a disciple to be oriented correctly, I want you to hear me out. We first must be oriented. We must be shifted, corrected to the fact that God's grace is indeed a gift. It's indeed a gift. That, that foundation is everything. Because if we don't get that, if we think it's not a gift, it's something that I am owed. It's a wage that I have earned. It's a right that I have been passed down to me by my family lineage or being a Baptist or attending enough church services. What happens is we get a wonked out, warped foundation and then the rest of what's being built just doesn't fulfill the purpose. But when we understand that I am a mess and God chose to demonstrate His grace to me to turn this mess into a message, then all of a sudden that word shifted. 
our foundation is corrected and we begin living the way we need to. See, this is a, the plumb line for the balance of the wall. That if we don't get it right, that God's grace is a gift and everything's built upon that, we can miss it. And if we miss this, we miss it all. Today, if you're in this room and, and you've come asking questions about what it means to live rightly, to be holy, to know God, to do the right things, to clean your act up, all those kind of things, what's a perfectly normal consideration to do when we come to church? Especially if we've been away for a long time. I don't want you to miss this. None of us that is here, whether we look like we have our lives cleaned up or not, deserves anything from God. But because of who He is, His great love to us, He gives us grace and starts shifting our life. It's a gift and it's essential. Here's the problem. I talked about you when you get this warped. If you don't get the fact that grace is a gift given to you by God Almighty, you can easily fall into the category of becoming a grace killer. You know what a grace killer is, right? Well, there's God's grace, but there's all this list of rules. And this is my list of rules. And if you don't follow my list of rules, then you must not love Jesus. If you don't look, walk, talk, act, dress like me, you are no lover of the Father. Because that is only what a Christian would do. That is not a modern day phenomenon, by the way. We call that legalism. Paul encountered this in his day. He would write about it against Galatians. He says, you've got these people that say you've got to do this, you've got to follow all this old Jewish law before you'd be made right with God. When it's actually just the grace of God that changes life to begin with. We've got to get it right. It's a gift. So that we don't become grace killers. Trying to say, yeah, it's God but this. In other words, we're trying to add something and make it our own. We don't need to miss out on this gift because if we do, we could also fall into a whole other category. Instead of becoming a grace killer, we'll become a grace abuser. Well, God's grace is on me. I can pretty much do whatever I want. There's no judgment. He's going to forgive it all anyways. Basically, instead of saying, I'm a legalist, I've turned grace into a license to thrill. To do whatever I want to do. That's not treating a gift well. We can become grace rejectors and think, ah, it's not that big of a deal what God has given. This gift is not that huge. And just turn and walk away from it as if it has no beauty, no awesomeness to it. When we get it right, what we see is, man, we need to become grace embracers. Wow, I am privileged that God would have put someone in my life to share the message of faith to me and to see the gift of grace. I received that gift, not from that person, but from Jesus. And now I can't wait to share it and demonstrate it with others. I want to show off this gift. Paul is saying, I am writing to you and it's going to come across hard at times, but I want you to know I am not doing this because I am anybody, but because I am speaking and living for the someone who changed who I am. I am founded. My life is this foundation gifted by God's grace. And I would say that it's not just the Apostle Paul, that God's Word has been preserved and kept for us today so that we would understand that we have a foundation that's gifted to us. How are we treating that foundation? How are we prizing that gift? Observation number two. Because of the foundation gifted to us, we have firm guidance because of God's grace. By the way, there's a little pattern here. You're going to see that in a minute. We have a firm guidance because of God's grace. Paul writes, according to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder. The apostle also counted a privilege to partake in such a gift he knew that the foundation, this grace that was gifted to him, it not only changed his life by his sitting in his position before God, but it changed his life in his practice before God and man. In other words, when we are made right with Jesus, because of Jesus, not because of anything that we could do, but because of what he did on the cross, we have a new position before God. He sees us as a child that is rescued, a child that is saved, a child that is adopted. 
That is our new position before God. But it doesn't just say, all right, you're given a position now that has no practicality in life. Now that you have this new position, the very practices of your life begin to mirror that position. It begins to reflect who you are in Christ. It gives you a guidance. And this guidance for us and for all, for Paul, was to partake in sharing about the facts and offer of Jesus Christ. That just as we had received the gospel freely, we must freely help others receive it. Paul says that this is about the facts and offer of Christ. He says that we, are, we can partake in this, but we must be careful. Each one is to be careful of how he builds on this foundation. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. We must be crucial not to make the faith something it isn't. We must be very careful not to try to manipulate it to our own kind of feelings and walkingness. No, the very definition of being a witness is taking what you have received and helping others receive the same. And the only thing that you have received of worth is the facts and offer of Jesus Christ and His grace. The gift. We must be careful how we build upon it. For no, other, no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. There's a third observation we see in verse 11. That not only do we have this foundation that's gifted to us by God's grace, and not only do we have this firm guidance because of God's grace that changes our position and our practice, But we also have a faultless guardian through God's grace. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. That we have not been just gifted this little thing in a box. We have been gifted with God Almighty. There's no box for that. There's no container that holds Him. And... If we miss out on the gravity, how awesome and great it is that Jesus says, not only am I giving you grace that pardons you, but I have gifted you me, the one who is absolutely faultless and will be with you always. If we miss that, man, we're going to be terribly messed up. The messy doesn't become a message. It stays messy. So here's the question. Why should the Christian, why should you and I as believers be bound, I mean just solid, and, and, and embrace that foundation that is in Jesus Christ. Why should that make such a big deal? Why does that have to impact every single thing that we do? What's the big deal about that? Other than just being, you know, a song that I can sing, a check that I can write. Why am I supposed to be so bound in this? Well, it's because of this. Because it is in Him and in Him alone that you and I as Christians individually and as the church collectively can find absolutely three things. More than three things, but I know of three things that changes our past, present, and future. That's pretty huge if something changes your past, present, and future, right? I mean, that's pretty much all of it. Is there anything other than past, present, and future? All right, so let's see how it changes past, present, and future. So that encompasses a lot. But let's look at those three things specifically. It is in Jesus Christ, in Him and Him alone, this faultless guardian that we have through God's grace, that the Christian finds forgiveness for past sins. Now, I am not asking you to have a big confession service today. But I would venture to say that if you had to come in day in and day out and confess every sin from your past, we would probably be here longer than 1230. Am I right? Now, we complain about the length of worship. Imagine if you had to confess every single sin. That's something you say to past sins for your whole life. Imagine just if you had to confess every sin from this last week. Still be here longer than 1230. If we had to keep a record of that and make penance of that every time. But in Christ, there is a forgiveness 
for past sins. The Christian now discovers that in him there is a new relationship with God. It's not coming before him and falling on our knees and, and trying to be appeased and paying penance and saying, I'm trying to make up all my misdeeds, God, this week. It's saying, God, Father, I know that I, I am so thankful for your grace, grace and I regret the moments where I have misused it, misabused it. And I want to be right with you. And Jesus says, because of me, you already are. Because I'm the faultless one. And I guard you. You see, we get forgiveness from past sins. We discover that this holy, almighty God is now not someone so distant and far away. Or someone at war with us. He is now friend. And Father, we discover what it means to be at home with God. That being in closeness and proximity with Him is not so strange anymore. We discover that this God that we talk about is Jesus. And everything that is true of Jesus is true of God. So you know what it means? We probably better get to know this Jesus is presented by the Scripture. Because when we see Him, we see clearly God because He was God. We discover that where there was once felt fear, now we can behold love. And perfect love, as the Bible says, cast out all fear. We discover that there was once this infinite remoteness and distance, but now there is near tender mercy. You see, the Christian is to be so bound up in the foundation of Jesus because one, it is forgiveness for everything in the past. And once this day is over, it'll be forgiveness for it. Because it'll be in the past. Not only is it forgiveness for past sins, but it's strength for the present. That what we do in the here and now, we find that through the presence of Jesus, remaining with us in our very presence, there's now courage to cope with all that is in life. There's now courage that when we turn the news, yes, we may not understand why, but we understand who holds hope. We understand goodness, and we can face another day. Whenever we're walking through those battles, some we will win, some we will lose. But God is with us. We find that we are no longer an isolated unit fighting a lonely battle with the adversities of this universe. That in our battles against flesh and blood, we are not alone. In our battles against temptations, we are not alone. In our battles with the, the elements of this world, we are not alone. We no longer have to fight by our side, by ourselves. God is with us. We find that this life, there is nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love that is found in Christ Jesus. So regardless of what your present may hold right now, the Bible tells us for those that are in Christ Jesus, there's neither, there's neither height nor depth nor any created thing nor anything past, present, or future that could ever separate you from, those, from the love that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. That's huge. We find that as we walk in the ways of life, that God walks with us. And He never lets us go. We find that as we fight the battles of life, our God fights for us. In mind of that image, in the book of Exodus, when the children of Israel are faced with the seas in front of them, and behind them are the armies of Pharaoh coming after them. And in this huge moment, God has separated the armies and the people of Israel by this wall of fire. And then the people are all in like, you know, bunch of cackling hens. They're all mad and frustrated at, at Moses. And What does Moses say? Be still. The Lord fights for you. In that moment, there's a miraculous undertaking of the seas parting. God fights for us in His ways. He didn't just go by Pharaoh's army. He separated out and He gave His people the way to walk through in the middle of the danger. He guided them in the way they needed to live in their present moment. Not only is it the Christian to be bound 
so heavily, so embracing of Jesus because of past sins being forgiven and strength for today, strength for the present, but also hope for the future. When we bind ourselves to Jesus, what we do is we uncover the fact that we no longer live in a world where we're afraid to look forward. We no longer live in a world where we're afraid to look forward. You know what? Yeah, there are going to be days that are dark, but I'm not scared to look forward. There's going to be hard work ahead, but I'm not scared to work and look forward. Because you know which one's going with us? Jesus. And if He be with us, who could be against us? I'm not afraid to walk forward in the world. It's going to be costly, yes, but I have the one that paid the ultimate price for me. What could be more costly? We uncover the fact that we live in a world where God is still in control. Where He is working all things together for good. Where all time is still in His hands. So I have hope for the future. We uncover the fact that we live in a world where death is no longer the end. It's just the prelude to the greater story. That's a huge thing. It's one of the most terrifying things in this world is death and that death will come for us all. But for the Christian, it is merely just the prelude to the greater story. You're still in the opening act, my friends. But here's why the Christian is to be bound up on these things. Because without the foundation of Christ, a man can have none of these things. But in Christ, we are gifted them all. That is a promise of all. You don't just get some of it if you get Jesus. You get it all. But if you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. And this all comes because of the Gospel, this glorious declaration of the gracious living God. That who, this God who is holy in all of His character and all of His power and His might, and He sees the offensiveness of sin, what is He going to do about it? Is He just going to strike down everybody and say, well, I washed my hands of this. No, He is so compassionate, even to those who were considered enemies of the church. He willingly, graciously gave up His Son for. Paul knew this full well. For He was once that enemy of the church. Jesus died for Him too. And it was only the sufficiency of Christ that could take that price. And based on what He has done, we are able to embrace these promises, this gift, this foundation of God's grace by personally trusting in Jesus. By believing in our heart and confessing with our lips. And that when we do that, our whole life is reoriented. Our position has changed. Our practice is different. Our eternity is now opened wide. Our hope for the future. And life here today is transformed. All of this because of the Gospel. Within Christ, we, we have all of these things gifted to us. There's a fourth observation that Paul makes in the Scripture, moving to verses 12 through 13. It's that God's grace requires a response. That whenever God's grace is demonstrated, there's going to be a response to it. Some will reject it, and some will receive it. And then they're going to live life and build upon that in the ways that they understand and grow. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, or hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. You see, the Christian life is only built upon the foundation of grace. The foundation of God's grace. It can't be built in any other. Anything else is not an authentic Christian life. Here the Apostle Paul writes about that which is built upon the foundation of the church. And he does not talk about building up of necessarily wrong things. He just uses a bunch of elemental things. But what he does is say that even though these are not wrong, all of these are inadequate. These are weak and watered down things. If your life is built on aspiring towards treasure, silver, gold, precious stones, or your world is just built upon the natural, everyday, just making it through life, wood, hay, and straw. All of these, in the eternal scope of things, are weak and watered down things. These are one-sided things which will stress some things too much and other things too little. They are things that have gotten out of balance. These are warped things in which even the greatest things have emerged as twisted and distorted. 
something will be built upon the foundation that Christ places in our life. This will be our response to what God has gifted, what God has made known. But obviously, something's going wrong in Corinth. That's why Paul's writing the letter. Something's gone wrong. What's, what's the deal? If this is what God directs and orients, how come it gets so messed up? Well, we still live in a fallen world. We still deal with the, the temptations that are difficult. We still struggle. But here's some ways that people get this wrong. They hear the Gospel, but they filter it and try to twist it to their own way. And their life is built on a non-sufficient Gospel. An insufficient Gospel. Because non-sufficient is not a word. But here's what they do. They trust in a Gospel that's less than what the Bible declares. And their life gets distorted. They build their life on this therapeutic gospel message. A therapeutic gospel response. This is, this is one of those counterfeit gospel responses, by the way. You know what a therapeutic gospel response is? God just wants me to be happy. And as long as I'm happy, I'm doing what God wants. That's a false gospel. That's a counterfeit. Treats God as, hey, God just wants to give me a happy meal. They, they trust in a judgmentless gospel. Well, God's grace covers everything, and so there's no expectation from me. I'm, I'm without judgment. And yet I also won't allow you to judge me. There's no expectation. There's the moralistic gospel response. Well, you know... The gospel is good, but it's just really about us being nice to one another. That's all it is. You know, we can't hurt anybody's feelings. Let's just do good. There's the quiet gospel response of, well, it's all personal, and, and, and we don't need to take what we feel deeply here out there. They don't need to hear that. We don't need to disturb them. There's the activist gospel response. Well, because of Jesus, we better get out and act and wrap the cross in red, white, and blue or whatever color flag we've got at the moment. There is the churchless gospel response. Well, Jesus saved me, but I don't really need the church. It doesn't do anything for me. And of course, there's everybody's favorite. You can find it on multiple channels if you have cable. The prosperity gospel. If I sow enough seeds of faith, if I push in the right buttons, God's going to bless me. And I'll never be broke again. By the way, that was an actual tweet by a prosperity gospel preacher of the day. If you have faith and trust in Jesus, you'll never be broke again. You know, I've never seen that written in the Bible anywhere. But people get this wrong. The people in Corinth were getting this wrong. And so let us not be naive or turn our nose enough or, or miss out in thinking that we automatically have it right either. This requires us to say, Lord, in Your Holy Spirit, look on that foundation of grace that You have gifted on me and determine if what I'm building upon it is correctly oriented. Because I was built to worship You in the right, authentic way. And if I've got things twisted, Lord, help me. Because if I do, I will never be the effective part of the church that needs to be until I repent and You change me. And the good news is He's compassionate enough that He will. Observation number five. That because of God's grace, it requires a response, but it also receives a reward. That one day, one day... Jesus will come and test what is built upon that foundation of grace. And here's the thing. While you receive grace, God's unmerited favor, what you do with that life based on what Jesus has done for you, one day, if it is correctly oriented towards following and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ by your delight in Him, 
that it will be tested and that will receive a reward. Because the day is coming. The Bible is not just giving us this thing like, well, you know, Jesus is going to offer this grace, but there's never an expectation. No, He says one day He's coming back. And to those who live faithfully, there will be a reward. But to those who do not live faithfully, if they know Jesus, they will be saved. But every other aspect of their life will be burnt up and gone. And when I think about that, it's so sad. Some people say, well, if I just get to heaven and there's a shack waiting for me, I'm good. Yes and no. What would be so sad is to think that Jesus did everything to die for me and you. And we said, yes, I want that. But we were not willing to do anything to live for Him. And thus, when we come to eternity, we say, well, Jesus, You offered all this stuff to me, all this grace, and I just... wasn't a big deal for me. Thank You, I'm in heaven. I have nothing to offer. When the Bible says that there is something that you can offer, a life that's holy and pleasing to God, delighting in Him, and built on the right things, built upon the Scripture, and presenting that before Jesus. William Barclay said this uh, concise statement. Well, I think it's pretty concise, but it's a really pretty and just way of looking at things. This is what it says. It says, all our best versions of Christianity are inadequate. At best, all our versions of Christianity are inadequate. Our best versions. But we would be saved much inadequacy if we tested them, not by our own prejudices and presuppositions, not to be in agreement with this or that theologian, but if we set them in the light of the New Testament and above all, in the light of the cross. If we held up our life to the image of the cross and held it up to the light and said, God, is it there? We'll know. We'll know. What is left there will receive a reward. And this is the last part of observation number six. Observation number six, God's grace remains on the receiver. That no matter what, no matter where you have found yourself today, God's grace has remained on you. Now, if you're an unbeliever, if you've not trusted in Jesus, what I mean by that is not that you're saved, but that until now, God has allowed breath in your lungs, a heartbeat in your chest, somewhat of a brain in your head, and, and feet in your shoes to be here for a divine appointment where you may hear the message. That's God's grace being given and patient to you. And as a believer in these rooms, in this room, you are no doubt being kept and preserved, even in our felties. I'll admit, I have plenty of faults myself, but we are being preserved by God, that His grace has remained on us. In fact, it's remained on us so much that Paul writes and says, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple? The Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and that is what you are. What does that mean, that God's grace remains on us? Remember I said in the beginning of the best time that I love seeing buildings for their purpose? One of the most opulent buildings in Paul's day was the temple in Jerusalem. It was one of the most opulent, astounding buildings. No other place, there were many magnificent buildings, but no place was as opulent as this temple. People came from everywhere to see and gaze upon this place where the presence of God was supposedly to dwell in all of His holdings. And it was built for a purpose to worship the presence. But that temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. and it's yet to ever be built again. But here's what Paul says. You don't have to go to some opulent building to encounter the presence of God. Because you, as a believer, because of God's grace remaining upon you, you are a holy temple. And here's what else that means. Because you are a holy temple and no matter where you go, you get to carry the Holy Spirit inside of you and it remains on you. Here's what you need to know as well. That people don't have to go, other people don't have to go far away to experience the presence of God. They should be able to come to you and see the evidence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. 
This is how serious we are to take this direction. That every day, our goal is to be living acts of worship built to declare the praise of the One who demonstrated His awesome grace to us. Is that where you and I are today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You so much for Your Word and I pray that as we come to this time of response, this time of invitation, that that we would respond according to Your Holy Spirit speaking to us today. That we would, we would respond according to Your direction. And that we would see the magnificent, marvelous grace that's being demonstrated to us time and time again and is here being declared. And because of You, because of this moment, because of this encounter, something shifted. Something was transformed. Not because of our will or our might, but by the power of Your Spirit. So Jesus, move as only You can in this moment. In Your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed. One of the things we do in this time of response is we offer a time of, of declaration, a time of praise, but also a time of examination. What do I mean by that? Well, I've been asking people week after week if they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and have peace with God. If, if, if that's you, if, I've been asking them to raise their hands. Each week I've been asking them to do that because it's a way for us to be reminded Were it not for grace, I would not be where I am. It's that reminder that we need every week. And it's also a way of, with uplifted hands, of praising the Lord and being thankful for the peace that He provides. And so I want to ask that question again today. If that's you, if you're in this room and you recognize, by God's grace, that you have peace with God, would you just, with uplifted hands, lift up and, and honor Him if you know that to be true in your life today? Amen, amen. And there were some that did not raise their hand, and maybe that was because I didn't communicate the question very well. But maybe it was because you just know somewhere inside that you don't have peace with God. You recognize you need it. Hopefully you recognize you want it. And if that's you today, whereas we could praise God with but those that raise their hands and say, I have peace with God. Today, I want to pray for you if you feel like you don't have peace with God. And the only way I can know that I, I can pray for you specifically is if you'll raise your hand right now. If that's you, and you say, Pastor, I recognize I don't have peace with God. I know I need it. I know I want it. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you today. Real scared about raising your hand if that's you and... You still know that you need peace with God and you know you want it. The Bible tells us there's only one way. But it's a provided way. It's a paid for way. It's already been accomplished by Jesus. And it's a gift that we receive. How do we receive that? The Bible tells us first it comes by admitting our need for a Savior. Making that initial cry for help. Recognizing you're a sinner in need of a Savior. It's also not only admitting your need for help, but believing that Jesus is who He says He is. That He really is God who died in our place and rose again. And then it's confessing. It's confessing that faith that resides in your heart, confessing with your lips, declaring Jesus as Lord, confessing your sins to Him and asking for forgiveness, confessing your desire to follow Him in your life. Today, if you were in this room and, and you didn't raise your hand, you didn't want to feel awkward, but you know that you need peace with God, you can pray a prayer like this based on belief in your heart. This is the confession. Jesus, I admit today that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I am lost and in need of help. And today, based on Your Word, I see that You are Lord. That You, Jesus, are who You say You are. 
and that You died in my place and rose again. And I confess You as my King. As my God. I confess my sins to You and ask You to forgive them. And I confess that I need You to help me to follow after You. Save me, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Today, if that was you, we're going to have a time of response. The music continues to play. And, and if you made that decision today, I want to just ask if you would come to the front in a few minutes. Not because we want to show you off or anything like that, but, but we do want to celebrate with you. But we also want to pray for you and help you take those next steps. But this time of response is not just for someone who may have just gotten saved. It could be for the person who knows there's a next step they need to take with the Lord. Perhaps they need to be scripturally baptized. Next week we're doing that. And, and you need to say, Pastor, I, I've never done that. I, I, I might have been baptized as an infant. and My parents had really good meaning and well-intentioned hearts. But that baptism was for them as they were seeking to honor the Lord. But now that you have placed your faith in Jesus, it's time for you to say, I want to honor the Lord by me being baptized as an act of faith. Maybe it's a decision where you say, I know I need to be firmly planted and, and unite with the church. And this is, it's here at Eastgate. Maybe God's calling you to some new kind of mission or ministry, something. Wherever you find yourself, if you need someone to talk to, I'm going to be down here at the front. Maybe you're more familiar with one of the leaders in your life group or someone you came with and you need to talk and pray with them. But wherever the Lord leads you, you follow His direction today. I'm up here should you need someone to talk. As we come to this time of closing and preparing to depart and be deployed as servants of the Lord into this world, I just ask that you stand and sing with us as we honor God, declaring His praise through a, an old familiar song, maybe done slightly differently, but a way of saying, God, were it not for grace, I would not be who I am. And I stand amazed in Your marvelous presence.